0: Welcome to JourneyWithJesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Thomas, the Disciple of Doubt. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, April the 3rd, 2016. On Easter Sunday, we Christians condensed our confession down to just three words Christ is risen. Those three words are a game changer. Without the resurrection, Jesus is just another interesting teacher, however important. But with it, believers confess that God in Christ has defeated death and reconciled the cosmos to himself. And so, the Yale historian Yaroslav Pelikan once wrote, if Christ is raised from the dead, nothing else matters. If he is not raised from the dead, nothing else matters. This is what we preach, and this is what you believed, Paul wrote to the Corinthians. <clears throat> Paul raised the bar about as high as you can when he said that no one should believe a lie about the resurrection, and that no one should preach a lie. If Christ isn't raised, said Paul, then the first witnesses were, in Pascal's famous words, deceived or deceivers. This week is different. John says that he wrote his gospel with a very explicit agenda, that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. But the gospel reading this week from John is not about faith, but about doubt and in particular Thomas's famous disbelief in the resurrection except for the times when he's grocery listed with the other disciples there are only three references to Thomas in the Gospels they're all in John's Gospel and they all reveal Thomas's skeptical bent after Lazarus died In Jesus' plan to return to Judea, where villagers almost stone him, Thomas replied, Let us also go, that we may die with him. And then, when Jesus told his disciples that they would join him in glory, Thomas questioned him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And thirdly, there's this week's gospel. When told that Jesus had appeared to the other disciples, Thomas was incredulous. Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The last several years, I've enjoyed reading the poetry of Denise Levertov, 1923-1997. to 1997. Her personal story is so interesting. Denise Levertov was born in England to a Welsh mother and a Russian Hasidic father. He had immigrated to the UK from Leipzig, converted to Christianity, and become an Anglican priest. After moving to the United States in 1948, Levertov taught at a number of places, including 11 years at Stanford from 1982 to 1993. By the time she died, she had published 50 volumes. It was at Stanford, where her papers are now housed, that Levertov converted to Christianity at the age of 60. Her little book, The Stream and the Sapphire, collects 38 poems that trace her very slow movement from agnosticism to Christian faith. Levertov always had an affinity for Thomas the Doubter. She wrote a mass for the day of St. Thomas Didymus. And in the book I just mentioned, The Stream and the Sapphire, she included the poem with the title St. Thomas Didymus. The Greek word Didymus and the Aramaic word Tomas both mean the twin. In her poem, though, Levertov imagines Thomas identifying with his spiritual twin rather than with his biological brother. Thomas's spiritual twin, in Levertov's poetic imagination, is the desperate and doubting father in Mark 9:24. I do believe Help, my unbelief. Long after Thomas saw the miraculous healing of that little boy in Mark 9, the doubt of the father plagued him. In in the language of Levertov's poem, despite all that he witnessed, his question remained Thomas's question. Listen to Levertov's poem. In the hot street at noon I saw him, a small man, gray but vivid, standing forth beyond the crowd's buzzing, holding in desperate grip his shaking, teeth-gnashing son, and I thought him my brother. I heard him cry out, weeping, and speak these words, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief and I knew him to be my twin. A man whose entire being had knotted itself into the one tight-drawn question, why? Why has this child lost his childhood in suffering? Why is this child who will soon be a man tormented, torn, twisted? Why is he cruelly punished who has done nothing except be born? The twin of my birth was not so close as that man I heard say what my heart sighed with each beat. My breath silently cried in and out, in and out. After the healing, he, with his wondering, newly peaceful boy, receded. No one dwells on the gratitude, the astonished joy, the swift acceptance and forgetting, I did not follow to see their changed lives. What I retained was the flash of kinship. Despite all that I witnessed, his question remained my question, throbbed like a stealthy cancer known only to doctor and patient. To others, I seemed well enough. So it was that after Golgotha My spirit in secret lurched in the same convulsed writhings that tore that child before he was healed. And after the empty tomb, when they told me that he lived, had spoken to Magdalene, told me that though he had passed through the doors like a ghost, he had breathed on them the breath of a living man. Even then, when hope tried with a flutter of wings to lift me, Still, alone with myself, my heavy cry was the same. Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. I needed blood to tell me the truth, the touch of blood. Even my side of the dark crust of it round the nail holes didn't thrust its meaning all the way through to that manifold knot in me that willed to possess all knowledge, refusing to loosen unless that insistence won the battle I fought with life. But when my hand, led by his hand's firm clasp, entered the unhealed wound, my fingers encountering rib bone and pulsing heat, what I felt was not scalding pain, shame for my obstinate need, but light Light streaming into me, over me, filling the room as I had lived till then in a cold cave, and now coming forth for the first time, the knot that bound me unraveling. I witnessed all things quicken to color, to form, my question not answered but given its part in a vast unfolding design, lit by a risen son. Not all those people who saw the risen Christ believed. In fact, in his last recorded appearance in Matthew twenty-eight seventeen, we read that when they saw him, they worshipped, but some were doubtful. And conversely, not all those who believed saw him after his resurrection. Thomas was an exception, said Jesus. Because you have seen me, you believed. Blessed are those who did not see and believed. Similarly in 1 Peter one eight, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. A week later, after touching the wounds of Jesus, Thomas confessed, My Lord and my God. In Levertoff's poem, Thomas' questions weren't exactly answered, they were put into a larger context and into a different light. In the end, the famous doubter became a passionate witness. The acts of Thomas from the early 3rd century say that Thomas took the gospel to India by the year 52 AD. And so today, the St. Thomas Christians trace their origins to this disciple of doubt. For books this week, I review a title by Rabbi Jonathan Sachs. The name of the book, Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence, New York, Shockin' Books, 2015. This book is 305 pages long. Think about it for a minute. The first religious act by the first children of Adam and Eve, led directly to the first murder. Cain and Abel offered their sacrifices to God. When God rejected the former's gift and accepted the latter's, Genesis says that Cain was very angry. Despite God's efforts to calm him down, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. This on page 5 of my Bible, a book whose purpose is to commend religion. God's verdict about Cain's act of sacred violence is as true today as it was back then. Your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. In a few pages later, we read how God wept over the breadth and depth of our human violence. Genesis six six, Yes, the story says, we are our brother's keeper. Following the work of Freud and René Girard, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs locates the origins of religious violence in sibling rivalry and mimetic desire. Sibling rivalry is the most primal form of violence, and the dominant theme of the book of Genesis. We desire what others have. We become rivals for it. And then we fight to get it in what we wrongly think is a zero-sum game. And so Jews, Christians, and Muslims all claim to be the true heir of Abraham. In other words, we fight to be the sole inheritor of the divine promise. The stories are familiar to those who know their Bibles, but in Sax's close reading of them, he offers interpretations in which sibling rivalry is revealed and then subverted. With Isaac and Ishmael, we learn that God chooses Isaac, but he doesn't reject Ishmael. The story of Jacob and Esau is the refutation of sibling rivalry in the Bible. Recall how Jacob eventually returned the blessing that he had stolen from his blind father, Isaac. The story of Joseph and his brothers who tried to kill him takes up a third of the book of Genesis, that in the end the victim forgives and the perpetrators repent. Rachel and Leah exemplify what Sachs calls the rejection of rejection. And so, says Sachs, sibling rivalry is natural, but it's not inevitable. Human beings cannot live without a group identity, and religion might be the most powerful of them all. By definition, groups require an us and a them. It's hard not to hear the binary words of former President George Bush, You're either for us or against us. No middle ground, no subtlety or neurons, only black and white, in or out. By nature, we extend altruism toward my in-group and hostility toward my out-group. Here again, says Sacks, the Hebrew revelation subverts our natural inclinations, by commending a radical role reversal. Don't oppress the stranger, the people outside your group. Why? Because you know what it's like to be oppressed as a stranger in a strange land. Exodus 22, 21. Love your neighbor. Protect the weak. Care for widows and orphans. Help the poor. Speak up for those who have no voice. Do justice love kindness, don't long for power for you can't impose faith or truth by force. For Sachs religion is thus an anti-politics that lives without power. Instead it compels by example. Demographers tell us that people of religion will increase in the coming decades whereas secular populations will decrease. We must reclaim our common humanity that takes precedence over our religious differences. However powerful the natural impulse is, Sachs, we don't have to desire what my rival has, because it's for what we uniquely are that we are all loved by God. So in the end whereas the roots of human violence are found in religion and even on the very first pages of the Bible so too is it subversion for the original abrahamic promise in genesis 12:3 was that through you all the families on the earth will be blessed Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, Not in God's Name, Confronting Religious Violence. For movies this week, I review a new film, Risen, from the year 2016. I had decided not to see the movie Risen by Sony Pictures, The film was released nationwide on February 19th to coincide with the run-up to Easter. The story is about an agnostic Roman centurion named Clavius, who is tasked by Pontius Pilate with debunking the rumors that a crucified criminal named Yeshua had risen from the dead. It sounded like an easy job, After all, Clavius himself had given the order to spear Yeshua in the side as he hung from the cross. So, all he had to do was to identify the dead body. The tomato meter gave Risen a paltry 57%. Metacritic registered 51%. And although I hadn't even seen the movie at the time, that didn't stop me from resonating with the review by Peter Travers in Rolling Stone magazine, who wrote, Risen joins the swelling ranks of faith-based films that pander to audiences instead of serving them. Nonetheless, I repressed my cinematic snootiness. And one Friday afternoon about a month before Easter, I went to see Risen. In many ways, my predisposed views were confirmed. Travers was right. And you can always quibble about the film's ratio of biblical accuracy to artistic license. I'll let you guess if there's a conversion. But in one important regard, I really liked the movie Risen. It helped me to imagine that in real history, And in real human lives, something like the story about Clavius definitely happened after the death of Jesus. Rumors and denials, fear and confusion, doubt and incredulity. And that's exactly what we read in the Gospels. So, in the end, I'm glad I went. The name of the movie, Risen, And finally, for our post-Easter poetry this Sunday, we've published a poem by the Welsh physician and poet Henry Vaughan. Henry Vaughan lived from 1621 to 1695. The title of this poem is The Revival, and if I was pressed to name a favorite poem, this might be it. Unfold, unfold, take in his light, who makes thy cares more short than night. The joys which with his day star rise, he deals to all but drowsy eyes. And what the men of this world miss, some drops and dews of future bliss. Hark how his winds have changed their note, and with warm whispers call thee out, the frosts are past, the storms are gone, and backward life at last comes on. The lofty groves in express joys reply unto the turtle's voice, and here in dust and dirt, oh, here the lilies of his love appear. Thank you for joining us at JourneyWithJesus.net. For Sunday, April the 3rd, 2016, I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.